Please open your Bibles at Acts 22 and verse 30, and we're going to hear a reading from that verse right through to the end of chapter 23 to verse 35. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and set him before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar. And some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than forty men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than forty of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, 
waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, and two hundred spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix, Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Silesia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Do you ever look back at your life and see, perhaps in the normal, natural events of life, a kind of supernatural thread running through those normal, natural events? Normal happenings, but you can see, looking back, God's hand working behind the scenes. Now that is called providence, God's providence. And I introduced this sermon by looking, describing what providence means, because in Acts 23, this particular chapter, there is no great doctrinal truth in this chapter. It's simply an historical narrative. But it does point very clearly to the providence of God in Paul's life. As I read this chapter and thought about the providence of God, I was reminded of um, the book of Esther in the Old Testament, where again there's no uh, advance of doctrine in that book. In fact, there's no mention of God. But in the storyline of Esther, in, as you watch and read normal events, behind the scenes, God is masterminding his purpose for his people at that time. So I want to say, be on the lookout for providence. Now, <clears throat> Luke, who's the author of Acts, is advancing a narrative in this book. And the narrative runs from Jerusalem through to Rome. And Luke, in particular, wants to show how Paul, this great apostle, gets to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. 
And we left off this storyline with Paul leaving Tyre and Caesarea, having been warned by Christian brothers not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul does go to Jerusalem, ignoring the advice of his fellow Christians. And there in in Jerusalem, as people, the Jews, hear that Paul, this once Pharisee, now preaching about Jesus, is in the city, a riot breaks out. Paul gets arrested for his own safety, but he asks the commander to allow him permission to address the crowds. And Paul addresses the crowds, and as we found out he, uh, last week's sermon, he gives a testimony about where he, why he is where he is, why he's doing what he's doing, this great uh, man, Paul, having met the risen Jesus. And uh, he, sa- he ends up, that's, or gets very close to the end of that sermon, by saying, then the Lord, meaning Jesus, said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, at that moment, that particular phrase causes the, the crowds to get very agitated and Paul's in danger of being killed by this crowd. And he plays uh, the Roman citizen card, as it were, and he gets arrested, but he's, he's, because he's a Roman citizen, he's not flogged. And the, and the very next day, the commander, who had arrested Paul, is determined to find out what the problem is all about. Why are the crowds rioting not just once, but twice, in regard to this man, Paul. And the, Romans and, uh, the Roman commander takes Paul before the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was a group of uh, 70 men in that time who had the political and also religious authority to rule over the people of Judah around Jerusalem. They had authority but it was a very limited authority because they were under the authority of the Romans and this Roman this Roman commander tells the Sanhedrin to assemble and he wants to bring Paul to them and then for them to interrogate Paul and for Paul to give a defense of himself and that would give the commander some insight into what all these riots were about. So let's follow the story in verse 1 of Acts 23. Remember, we're looking at the providence of God, how God is weaving his purpose in and throughout these perhaps normal natural events. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Now, that's not a good start. Just want to say a little bit about this high priest Ananias here, because I don't want you to get confused, um, because in the book of Acts, there are at least three Ananiases mentioned We find uh, Ananias, who was married to Sapphira in Acts 5, and he's the guy, you remember, who uh, sold a field and then said he'd sold it for this amount, 
and uh, gave that um, um, half, only half of it to the uh, apostles. There's another Ananias in uh, the conversion of Paul. And this man, Ananias, is the one who looks after Paul after that Damascus Road experience. And then we have this Ananias, who is the high priest, and this Ananias is a Sadducee. I'll explain the Sadducees, uh, what they stood for in a few moments' time. Now, this high priest, Ananias, he served as high priest from AD 47 right through to the first Jewish revolt in the mid-60s, around about 66, 67 AD. And that Jewish revolt ended, actually, in AD 70 with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and with the destruction of the temple by the Romans. Now, this guy, Ananias, this high priest, was not a very nice guy. He was corrupt and wicked, and in fact, he was killed by his own people, the Jews, at the beginning of the Jewish revolt. And Paul says, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And that statement seems to have brought a very strong reaction uh, to Ananias. And Ananias ordered Paul to be struck on the mouth. Now, when Paul says, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day, Paul is not claiming sinless perfection. What he is saying, he says, is this, that I have obeyed the external law of God. I have in good conscience tried very hard to obey the external law of God. And in fact, he says this, if I just uh, draw your attention to Philippians chapter 3, where Paul um, says this in this way. He talks about himself um, having been circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul is simply claiming to have tried very, very hard to fulfill the external law that God had given his people. And I think that explains the, um, the outburst by Ananias in, in getting Paul to be struck. This man's own conscience, Ananias, has been uh, pricked by Paul. Paul is saying something that Ananias could never say himself. And uh, Paul then reacts in a very strong way. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. It's a very strong reaction by Paul. And it seems that Paul did not know that the man who had ordered this striking of the face was the high priest. Now, what's going on here? It may be that Paul did not recognize Ananias as the high priest because, as I said earlier, this was a kind of an informal meeting of the Sanhedrin. Perhaps the high priest did not wear the normal high priestly robes so he could not be recognized. However, it may be that Paul did not recognize the high priest because of Paul's poor eyesight. We know from two references in the uh, letter that Paul wrote to the Galatian church 
that it seems that Paul had poor eyesight. Indeed, right at the very end of the, the last chapter in Galatians, Paul talks about writing this letter in large letters, which seems to indicate some eyesight problem. So Paul did not recognize that the man who had ordered the, uh, the striking on the face as the high priest, and when it's pointed out to him uh, that he is the high priest, Paul apologizes and says, I did not realize he was the high priest, and it is written, do not speak evil against the ruler of your people. Paul there confesses he is wrong, and he, he, it's an apology a public apology to the high priest. From verse uh, 6 onwards, I love this piece of uh, drama here. This is a piece of theatre, and I, I think Luke must have uh, had a smile on his face as he wrote this particular part, where Paul um, uses the fact that uh, in the Sanhedrin there are Pharisees like him, who have very sharp differences of opinion with the Sadducees. And Paul says, look, I'm a Pharisee. I'm here only because I preach the resurrection of the dead. Now, let me give you some background to this. The Sanhedrin, as I said earlier, was made up of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, teachers of the law. And these groups had their origins, their source, as it were, on what happened between the exile and the New Testament times of the Gospels. In the exile, the people were taken off into exile. They, they had to maintain their Jewish identity in Babylon. And how they did that was to have small groups, small Bible study groups. And out of those small Bible study groups, we have the origins of the synagogues. We have people who taught those those small Bible study groups, and uh, that's where the Pharisees come and the teachers of the law. The Sadducees were a group who um, came a bit, a bit later, and they were people who, strangely enough, were quite prepared to work hand in hand with the uh, pagan authorities, which ruled over Israel from the time of exile and from the time of return, the Greeks, uh, the Persians, first of all, then the Greeks, and now the Romans. And the Sadducees, because they were prepared to work with the Romans, they had political power. As I say, the high priest was a Sadducee. Now, there's some great differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in any miracles or the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in spirits or angels. Their only authority, their only scriptural authority, was the first five books of the Old Testament, what we know as Torah. However, the Pharisees did believe in all these things, miracles, resurrection, spirit, angels, and they believed in the whole of what we call the Old Testament, the history books, the prophets, as well as the first five books, the Torah. And uh, we have here Paul very cleverly, very wisely, um, trying to divide these two groups. Um, and he did it so well that there was a great division. They start arguing among themselves, and there was a great uproar. 
and uh, one saying one thing, one saying another, and the dispute became so violent that the commander was again afraid that Paul could be torn to pieces, it says, and he ordered the troops to take Paul away and bring him back into barracks, into uh, lockdown, as it were. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a very, very interesting little story, and it shows the wisdom that God gave to Paul to get out of this situation that he finds himself in. So Paul is taken back to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and, test, and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome about me. Paul, we know from the letter to the Romans, was always wanting to go to Rome, to preach the gospel there. And although he must have been a little bit discouraged initially when he'd been taken from the Sanhedrin back into to jail, the Lord appears to him and says, you must testify to me. So there's great encouragement here for Paul. Just want to say here that this kind of prison that Paul was put in is probably the same prison that Peter was put in uh, in the early parts of, of Acts as well. And we know from that story in the early part of Acts, Peter was freed from prison in quite extraordinary supernatural way, but it was not going to be the same for Paul. From this moment, I need to say to you, Paul stays a prisoner for the, next, for the rest of his life. Now, let's follow the story on from verse 12, the plot to kill Paul and how this was found out by the son of Paul's sister. Fascinating to read this. Um, we know that Paul, a Pharisee, was the son of a Pharisee. Um, we don't know much about his, his other family, but we do know here that he has a, at least one sister and he has a nephew. And again, think about what I've said earlier, the providence of God. This young nephew overhears a plot to kill Paul. And he goes and tells Paul about this plot, and Paul tells him to go and tell the commander about it and let the commander deal with the news that he has from his nephew. And so the uh, commander listens, and in verse 22, after listening, the commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone you have reported this to me. Now, we're not told the details of how this young man heard this plot. Was he uh, just part of the of uh, the grouping that met and just overheard something. We're not told anything like about how he found out, but we are told that he did find out and he told the centurion. And then, in the gain of the province of God, Paul was transferred to Caesarea. In verse 23 and verse 24, we're told the centurion ordered the, the commander ordered two of his centurions to get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine that night. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And he wrote Felix then a letter explaining what he was doing and why he was doing it. Now, again, 
I don't know how much you uh, like to stop and just consider details of stories. 470 men are gathered together to guard Paul on his way to Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is about 65 miles from Jerusalem. And Caesarea is actually the seat of the, of, of the Roman government in this area called Judea in Israel. 65 miles from Jerusalem. And Caesarea is a much, I was going to say, nicer place than Jerusalem. It's on the coast. It's beaches, etc., etc. It's a better place to be, and that's why the Romans like their seat of government to be there. So they, 470 men are gathered together to take this one man, Paul, from Jerusalem to Caesarea. 470, why? Did it need that much, that many? Well, the answer is we're living here in volatile times in the history of the Jewish people. And notice, they leave at night. They're, they're scared, and so they want to do this surreptitiously, as it were. They leave by night, and Paul is taken off to Caesarea. And there, as I said earlier, that uh, the, gov the, gov not the governor, the, the commander, writes a letter. The, governor, the commander is called Claudius Lysias, and he writes a letter to the governor, Felix, explaining the situation. And then, right at the end of this chapter, we have the cavalry arriving in Caesarea. They deliver the letter to the governor, and they hand Paul over to him. And then we are going to find out in next week the trial of Paul before Felix. Now, getting back to my original start, the providence of God. Here we have a commander who's willing to listen to what Paul says, to try and understand the situation, puts him in front of the, of the Sanhedrin. Paul manages to get out of, of trouble in the Sanhedrin to avoid there. Then we have the nephew of Paul finding out about the plot. And then we have the movement to Caesarea, the letter to uh, Governor Felix, and we're going to find that next week when we look at the trial before Felix, how Paul is on the move from Jerusalem to Rome through these providential events that God has his hand upon.